Meanwhile, I ran into two more friends of mine who qualified, or two cock chaps, and we had a um, rather a boisterous evening around the the bars of London. Finished up in a nightclub sometime the early hours of the morning, and uh, we had by that time decided we were going to join the services, one of the services. And we eliminated the army because none of us particularly wanted to. And the Navy and the Air Force were the choice between us. And um, we eventually got one of the hostesses to toss up. And she tossed up and um, came down on the side of the Air Force. And uh, the following morning, three very hungover young doctors arrived down at the Air Ministry to make inquiries. I think they were so glad to see us that we were interviewed, examined, medically examined, and accepted. And we were out in time to have the first drink in the pubs opening at half past 11. The late Air Commodore Aidan McCarthy was a young, recently qualified doctor from Castletown, Bairn County, Cork, when he joined the RAF at the outbreak of World War II in 1939. That toss of a coin was to have a momentous effect on his life. By December 1939, he was in France. He was first posted to a small village near Arras. It was a headquarters, really, and we were responsible for um, for squadrons out in, in various French Air Force airfields, and uh, in Douai and Merville and up near uh, Lille. And um, we had to um, visit them and make sure that they were, from my side, that the medical facilities were available and... Um, it, it was a, a travelling inspection and control type of job. You had some additional um, responsibilities in Arras as well. Can you tell oh, us we were, that? because the French, their wisdom, had sent all their doctors, took all, took all their doctors into the services, which left whole villages and even in some cases small towns completely devoid of any form of medical help except for nurses and, uh, and odd hospital staffs and um, we found ourselves army and air force doctors from the British side uh, more or less general practitioners for whole villages and this wasn't very helpful because you got maternity cases shot at you in the last stages of labour without knowing any of the history of the thing and um you had to have an interpreter the whole time because we didn't speak French and they didn't speak English. But we, we managed. And now, where, where troops go, ladies follow generally. What what uh, were your responsibilities regarding that? Yes, well, the um, French custom at the time, the first law or rule was that they provided um, um, brothels for... Um, for the public, for the, the male population, which were legalised, and uh, our troops naturally, and our officers, very quickly discovered this uh, additional benefit being bestowed on them, and um, it became uh, aware to the to our senior medical authorities that this was probably a cause uh, chance for infection of our troops and um, so we were uh, and an edict went out that we were to 
between us inspect these things uh, at least once a week. And this is an appalling job. We have to go down in the cold light of day to these uh, awful places, the stench and the smell, and uh, examine these women. And the madam was always very worried that we would find an infected case and close them. And she always met us at the door with a bottle of champagne to see if she could mollify our medical opinions in case of... Thing. And then the... Uh, all the bars were throughout the towns and villages were closed at 10 o'clock and um, so the officers made a habit of selecting one of the brothels where drink was still available and turning it into a sort of a, a club for for drinking rather than <laughs> for sexual pleasure and um, this was very embarrassing because the madams used to recognise me and again I was offered the free champagne and um, I had to embarrassingly refuse. What are the effects of drinking too much champagne? The effect we had because we ran out of, of beer and things else when we were in the headquarters in Arras was um, that um, we had nothing left but champagne because we could get it in, in cartloads from Reims. Uh, is bad piles, <laughs> and uh, this this. In fact, that we'd had so much champagne at at that stage, that it took me years afterwards to ever really form a taste for champagne again. <laughs> <laughs> However, the good life didn't last. In the spring of 1940, the Germans poured across the border into northern France, and very soon, both the French and British armies were in retreat. I was ordered to take. Um, about 150 of the staff, uh, and bring them to um, to um, Bordeaux, um, Boulogne for evacuation. So we formed a convoy of um, ambulances, fire fire tenders, water carriers, and various lorries with some motorbike outriders, and started on our journey through northern France for Boulogne. We found ourselves running parallel with a panzer division about two miles away at one stage, so we rapidly diverted north to get away from them. In case they saw us, and I don't think actually that they would have come anywhere near us, they were busy getting to the other side of the of northern France as quickly as possible, and they were going to be diverted by a, a sort of a semi-ambulance convoy. Anyway, we um, eventually got to Boulogne, only to find the last ship was sailing out the harbour. And we weren't very popular because most of our chaps were technicians, fitters, riggers and that kind of thing. And um, we weren't soldier material as such, and so we were much used to the Boulogne people for defending it. And uh, they told us to press on to Calais. And um, before we went there, they said, well, there's an officers' club here. You might like to help yourself to some of the... There's no point in leaving these things here. So we helped ourselves to cases of champagne and lots of exotic French perfumes in tiny bottles, which we put in our pockets and um, set off for Calais. Calais was... uh, under siege when we got there 
not under siege from the Germans, but they were preparing it for a siege, and the, in charge of the British Army units, who again told us to get lost because we were non-combatants. We were told then to proceed to Dunkirk, and um, we are proceeding along the coast road, and they started to die. The German started to dive bombers, and that um, meant we... It was too dangerous to travel. And anyway, the road was getting very um, pitted with shell holes and bombs. And that. So we had to scrap our lorries and get and walk. And we eventually got to the outskirts of Dunkirk, where we were uh, formed into a unit and they were marched down the beach. I had to go up to uh, Le Pin. It's another small seaside place on the other side of Dunkirk where the medical headquarters was and um, reporting as a doctor and uh, there you were put in a sort of um, uh, your name was put into a, a sort of a lotto sort of thing and pulled, if you pull a high number you you'll be told to go back to the beach and wait if you get a low number you're told you're allocated a I'd have to stay. And so I re- rejoined my crowd down on the beach and we had about two or three, two bad days and three horrible nights there. See, we were completely defenceless and we were using just what we could dig into the sand to use for um, sort of foxholes to protect ourselves from the bombing. And a direct hit would, would of course... Us, but you just had to pray, and uh, and uh, the whole thing was um, a dreadful experience. In that, you had some men were crying, some praying, some singing, some completely silent, and everybody terrified. And um, every now and again, some chap would make a break for it uh, to try and get away before his unit was called. And a military policeman would shoot him. And what what uh, would the role of a doctor be in circumstances like that? Would he have any role at all? Not really. They, 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 I, I was, they kept them with their units so that um, they, they, because really they they were surplus to requirements on, on the beach. And the question of go with the unit you came with. And uh, eventually our t- time came and. Um, it was very difficult, you see, because there was a a very shallow beach and the big boats, the boats bringing us out to the bigger boats, which were anchored off, um, were, were grounded and you had to wade out really up to your chest very often. Or there was a uh, um, breakwater that ran out. You could use that, go out along that. But a lot of people wanted to make... For the boat direct, and they were pulled pulled on this boat, and um, then brought out to the bigger boat, and um, we got eventually uh, put on um, a Lauren Stranraer ferry boat, and uh, we were with number quite a number of chaps wounded, which rather um, puzzled us at first, but did later because. Some of them were bullet wounds and not shell shell wounds. Anyway, we we opened up the dining 
what I'd been the dining room of the ferry thing and we started operating and removing and the first things were removed were three or three bullets they were British bullets from three or three Enfield rifles so I can only assume that they were fired at by some of our own chaps on our own chaps in the water. In panic, presumably. In panic, in panic. When he returned to England, Dr McCarthy was posted to a night bomber squadron. While serving there in May 1941, he almost lost his life. Well, there was um, a night, there was a squadron coming back from a raid in Germany, and one of our planes was um, in charge of a sergeant pilot who was his first job as skipper, as captain. Very efficient lad, but he said his first thing. And all sorts of things happened to him. When he got back, he had his red-green lights showing on his... on the dashboard of the thing, which meant that his undercarriage was down, but didn't know whether it was locked or not. So it could collapse on landing. And then a German got into the circuit. That was a trick of theirs. So, uh, they'd shoot down... Um, the moment the chap put on his lights to see at that time all the airfields were grass with no thing and we had to put on what they call a chance light a big light that we threw a light down and they landed over it and then along the thing we'd put these gooseneck flares and it, there was an airman in each and he lit it as the plane was landing then it was put out immediately he landed and um this chap was told to come in a bit faster in case his undercarriage collapsed. And he came in over the perimeter fence far too fast, touched down and realised that um, he was going too fast. The undercarriage, in fact, was, was all right. And he was going for takeoff again to keep going and he banked to the right and his wingtips caught the top of a bomb dump which was situated at the bottom at the airfield at the end of this runway and he tore the top off the bomb dump and they crashed straight into it and uh, quite a big fire so we got down about half because we were following down the the runway with an ambulance and a fire tender and um, we always most of the, the, the crews had Asbestos suits. For some reason, the doctors they didn't give us any. Anyway, um, one of the chaps with the I think it was the driver of the fire tender, and uh, myself jumped in and we found the pilot dead and three of the others alive. So we pulled those out and got them clear. And oh, there was a f- another one we couldn't find, but he was already dead too. And um, we. Um, got clear of the thing. The others all, when they saw the bombs scattered around, took off. I don't blame them, because... And... Um, the top bombs went went off, but what they did was they blew the others away, so there wasn't a massive explosion. Meanwhile, they had evacuated the station people in case that the, the whole bomb dump went up. And... Um, we we were safe, were burned safe and very scared. Did you think about what you were doing at all as you were doing it? Um, not really. No, I I, I, I don't I don't think I'd have done it if I'd really appreciated what, what was 
going on. It was sort of... You, you did it automatically, you know, and I think probably the... Um, it's very difficult to analyse a positive thought in things like this. You you do you do what you do and you you know, it's very difficult afterwards to come back and say, you know, at that time I I had a brave moment and because I think that you get beyond the stage of, of being scared to being terrified. And when you're really terrified I don't think you can really think. For this piece of bravery he received the George Medal. But his life was about to take another turn. When war with Japan broke out, he volunteered to go east. I got to Rangoon, and um, an urgent call came from Help Singapore. So we set off. We, we were carrying the best part of a squadron and a half of Spitfires and Hurricanes in the holds. And we also had an aircraft carrier shadowing us or waiting with act, an active squadron of Spitfires. And... Um, Got to Singapore, but it was too late. The Japs were already firing across the causeway. So we returned to Batavia in Java and assembled our planes. And as the planes were assembled and got ready, we, we um, sent them up to Palembang, which is in Sumatra. And when we got to Java, the, the, uh, there was... Oh, thousands of troops there. There was, there must have been six or seven thousand army from Singapore, and we had our own air force about nine or ten thousand, and um, it was a complete shambles because the Japs were beginning to do landings already in Java. But we found to our horror that the Jap- that the army, British Army doctors had all left their troops and we were lumbered with them. So we had to keep the um the um our own Air Force doctors back to look after them. In other words they didn't get a chance to evacuate with the rest. And um then it was decided that there wasn't enough arms and to cover the all the people then so they'd split them in half and half would surrender the other half would go up the hills in southern Java and um, so I went with the crowd that was going up the hills and on the way the um, our accountant officers were meeting us and they were handing us thousands of dollars in sterling and, and guilders to keep for safekeeping this in and uh, fortunately there was a lot of uh, Chinese uh, trading posts on the way which we <laughs> duly expended our money and one incident of, uh, which was rather interesting about that we decided that um, all this money wasn't going to be of much use to us so we we got a tin box and we three of us and we um, put about 10,000 pounds worth of money into the box and notes sealed the box thoroughly climbed up to the top of a large building and stuck the box in the in the corner of our, our roof rafter 
came back after the war and the box and everything was intact except all the money was white ants that got in and made confetti of it. Unfortunately, you were all fairly quickly captured. How did that happen? The, the, Jap- the, the Dutch thought that they could have a, a peaceful transition to the Japs. They could let them have it and uh, then they could work for them and everybody would live happily ever afterwards. So the Japs said, well, the first move to do is to get your women and children into Bandung and get them all there and then we'll talk. So they did that and then they said, well, you've got 24 hours to surrender, get these people up there to surrender or we bomb uh, Bandung. And the Dutch had to show them the way up the back of the hills, and so we were happily in the, look watching out for trouble, and they walked in the back of us. And then you were presumably put in a prison camp fairly quickly. Yes, we were marched down and put in a train and brought into um, an airfield in central Java. We were put in the hangars there. And how were you treated initially? Initially it was great. Because the the frontline troops didn't they again they regarded us with, as a sort of a uh, oddities and we regarded them as oddities but they were they tried to be within their reason they gave us odd bits of food and they never abused us in any way and but unfortunately they removed them and then this this third third class shower came and they treated us very differently. And in what way were, were, did they treat you differently? Well, they they shouted, they slapped you, and they kicked you if you did that quickly. And anybody, they they shot several people for not reacting quickly to the thing. And if you if they any thought of making an escape, or they and everything was counting, shouting, marching. You know, Did you see people being shot? Uh, oh yes, personally, yes. and beheaded. And were any of your own uh, colleagues shot? And yes, there was a there was a, one of our wing commanders was shot because he wouldn't um, he wouldn't tell them some air force codes, flying codes that the the Japanese air force people wanted. What were your feelings at that time when you saw this happening? Terror, terror. What did you eat in the uh, in the camp? Uh, mainly rice, rice, uh, dirty rice made up in the form of a pap, with vegetable heads, and occasionally fish heads, and um, water. So you weren't getting enough uh, protein, or oh no, no, no. Most of them were living on our reserves. Your methods of making medicine were pretty peculiar. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, it was... Um, the, we, the initial one was that we creamed off the dirty rice, we strained it, and the maggots we then collected and we boiled those and turned that into a maggot soup, which we gave to the um, sick as an additional... And fortunately, we got a hold of some um, live yeast cultures, and the chemists, especially the Dutch chemist amongst us, soon got to work. And you can develop a colony once it's active. And we used, uh, we developed quite a thriving. We were adding that as a, a yeast uh, 
product to our to, to um, the, the rice pap to especially to the sick um, the, the other medical things were, were to do with the next camp we went into where we, we this was um, a camp there was a large Japanese barracks in central Java and Bandung in which they um, uh there were a lot of facilities there. We turned out afterwards that it was a, a show camp for the Red Cross. And we were there for about four months. And, of course, it was marvellous because in that time we we were able to um, to help to, 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 to gain some of our things with the food. And we tried experiments about uh, different types of diets with this to see if we could cure the beriberi and the retrobulbin neuritis and the various deficiency diseases that were springing up and I think that most of us probably owed our continued existence over the next two years to the that boost we got when we were in this camp in Bandung Did you find yourself becoming gradually hardened to death at this stage? I'm not sure whether it's a hardening to death or a, a bigger determination to to keep from getting dead, you know, it was, it was this, this was our crate, our crater the whole time, you know, keep keep from getting dead, work work at it, and you were twenty four hours a day, that was an, the only thing on your mind. That was the major idea, and uh, so, but I think that by that stage, anyway, I had personally, I can only speak personally, had a certain immunity from some of the horror crashes I'd seen in the Air Force and um, after Dunkirk and that kind of thing. So death itself wasn't beginning to... You know, I, I can't speak for the others. You got uh, beaten a number of times. Can you tell me about that? Uh, well, I, w- I was... My first bad beating was when I was in the original camp down in, in the girls' school and... Um, I was going to the isolation where we'd isolated the distant cases and normally I had to pass the guards. The guards were sitting inside what would be the front porch of the... And when I got there, there was no guards, but there was a monkey on a a, a stand beside where the guards had been. So I saluted the monkey, but unfortunately one of the guards had come back and he saw me and he told the others and I got a pretty bad beating for that. And... um, then I think everybody got after that. I got my elbow smashed because I didn't salute fast enough with a rifle butt. And, uh, but the main beatings I got were in Japan when I was in charge of the camp and I was held responsible for the... If any troop didn't work hard enough or was caught infringing, I also had to get it because I was responsible for them. After moving around a number of camps, Aidan McCarthy was shipped to Japan travelling northwards in different rat-infested boats through the Philippines and Formosa until eventually they set anchor just off the Japanese coast. Just about five to midnight and um, everybody was in great spirits because we arrived safely. The torpedo hit us and um, I, I, was, I was surprised the others hadn't got up because I was sitting up fighting with a rat who got caught in my bit of 
mosquito netting. I was terrified, and I think the rat was too, but at any rate, he saved my life because the others, they impacted the top here, they'd broken their necks on the metal thing. So all the chaps I was trying to wake were actually dead. So I got up and I... All the lights had gone out and the water was beginning to come in through the thing. So I knew from my I pretty good knowledge of ships and I knew there should be a side, an iron ladder. So I searched for it and got it in the darkness and climbed up that and um, got out as... Oh, about uh, maybe a minute before the ship sank. You ended up in the water, presumably. Yeah, I, I, about, I got about 50 yards clear of the ship. I swam the best 50 yards of my life. With many other survivors? Well, it turned out when we got shore eventually that there was 42 of us out of the 980. And when you found yourself in the water, you presumably the, you were swimming around with, with other survivors. Can you tell me what happened? That well, it was a pretty bright scene because you see that the oil tankers were on fire. There was two of them on fire. And um, there was, I don't know how many ships he got, but it was, they seemed to be sinking everywhere. And um, there was a lot of wreckage. So we were hanging on to wreckage and you were really discovering people during the night. And then they discovered me... They, the doctor and they were shouting for help and I was doing a, <laughs> a surface surgery. I was swimming from one bit of wreckage to the other, tying up broken collarbones and trying to trying to, to splinter broken legs and things. And um, th- Meanwhile, they, any Japanese that had put their heads up, the chaps were knocking them off as, as fast as they were they're discovering them particularly the Australians and um, so I, I kept on warning them to, to do it before to complete their their good work before um, daylight because in case they were seen you see what weapons were they using to oh, bits of wood and they each took a turn and hit the man they never one man did it they all took it in turns any idea how many Japanese died that way I wouldn't know but there was a lot of them so you were rescued then, and that in itself was peculiar. What happened? We were picked up by a Japanese destroyer, and it started, they gave us rice balls to start with. And then I don't know whether they suddenly discovered what we were or who we were. Because we, we were naked, you see. And they, and they um, started beating us up and throwing us overboard. But a b- bunch of us from the top, we saw what was happening. We dived overboard. You see, if a chap was hit, some of the chaps were hit and they were not fully conscious. They were being cut in the screws of the propeller and there there was an awful lot of red blood in the sea around the thing. We dived clear of the boat because the destroyer going at speed is a very difficult (laughs) thing to get off. And we swam back to our bits of wreckage and we were trying to make up our mind whether we'd stay there or try and get to one of the islands which are way in the distance by some means, you know, paddle our way there. And towards um, we'd been 22 hours in the water then towards mid, uh, that was midnight so it was getting on for midday the next day and um, a bunch of about 
five or six boats came into view and there were Japanese whaling boats and they just started picking everybody else up and they didn't know and they didn't differentiate between us and Japs or, and um, took us into Nagasaki. Eventually he was put to work in Nagasaki but the war was drawing to a close. American planes were dominating the skies and Japan was being bombed. Our first outing was to, um, to the Mitsubishi yard to, 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 to weld plates on an aircraft carrier. We'd managed to persuade the Japs to let us dig our own homemade air raid shelters. And um, we, um, we, thought we were working on this thing, and on the 12th, about, round about midday, lovely bright August morning, we saw the, the eight vapour trails in two lots, of, two lots of four coming towards us, and then they veered away and they went north. And about uh, half an hour later, they appeared again. And one of them came in, and the other one went south. And that always meant that if one to change course like that, that one's going to bomb. So um, that, that immediately, the rest of us, we shot down for the air raid shelter to get in quickly. And about eight or ten other chaps decided they wouldn't bother. And um, it was one of those described it. He said that... Uh, Three parachutes came out, and there was this blinding flash. He was blind, actually, this chap, when he was telling it to us afterwards. They all died of, um, from the uh, effects of the radiation, radiation sickness. And we were in the shelter, and there were about five, five foot, five or six foot, about five foot deep, primitive concrete and a very thin layer with a sort of a hole for getting into thing and about uh, 15, 20 feet long and um, so we felt the, the, the warm air but nothing more and then one of the Australians stuck his head out and it was his blasphemous remarks that made us all shoot for the opening lookout and there was no camp, a gun and the day had turned to darkness to, to, instead of a bright August day. And you couldn't see any Nagasaki. It was just things sticking up here and there. And then fires everywhere and smoke and uh, screaming. And, um, and then the... I don't know why it is, but the, 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 the picture of thousands of tennis courts where factories had been and you saw the, the squares of, of the rectangles of, of cement. And um, so we jumped out, and the, the one thing I remember seeing in the camp before I left was the Japs had a habit of, in the guardhouse, of sitting around, although it was a bright August day, sitting around the, the stove in chairs. So the guardhouse had gone, the chairs had gone, and the Japs were all lying on the floor dead, with the stove sticking up in the middle. See, all all wood was carbonised, and um, we um, ran for the sea. We met another bunch of very frightened people running from the sea, the Japs, coming towards us, and we all veered then for the mountain, because we were in a valley to get out. And 
down the middle of this valley there was a, a river, the Abami River, it's, it's the middle of the thing. It was a filthy, um, you can imagine it was, you know, it was dirty and thing. And some of the chaps got stuck in that, you see, with the mud. We had an awful job pulling them out. And we were stopping now and again to help people. We suddenly realised that it was useless because everywhere you looked there was... And uh, one of the chaps pulled one of the... some woman and her complete skin came off her face and um, another chap was trying to help a child and the child's arm came away and his complete. And the thing was obviously that, you know, that something beyond our... And so we kept, we kept running. And... Um, then we got up to this mount, up the mountain, and the Japs were all as frightened as we were. They didn't treat us or anything. And then we went along to see if we could help because they were using uh, natural caves in the mountains to. Um, they were going to use as as air raid things if necessary for things. But it was quite useless because most of the people they were bringing in were dead. Most of the people treating them were already dying, so it was, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a chapter of. Did all of the all of the uh, colleagues, your colleagues who stayed above ground, did they all die very they all rapidly? Died. No, some of them didn't die for a couple of days actually. Yeah, and we um, we st- we stayed there then and helped the Japs the best we could the things, and they were very frightened as we were. Did you have any idea what sort of illnesses they were dying from? Had you ever seen well, anything we didn't like know, this? No, no, the, the word atom hadn't even entered our minds and we didn't know. It was later when we heard them talking, I heard the word, some, we heard one of the chaps mention the word atom, that we put our two and two together and we said that they've split the atom and um, we guessed then, because it was too terrific for one bomb. And um, we... Um, then uh, a horrible thing started, black rain. This was terrifying. I, I, I personally thought it was the end of the world. You know, I, I couldn't believe that, <laughs> that one, one bomb could do this thing. And I, I, so we um, were eventually rounded up by the Japanese thought police, the Kapitai. I don't know where, how they escaped, but they were there. And they took us outside Nagasaki and stuck us in a, what I imagine was being a small schoolhouse. And then they brought us in each day and we had to help cremate bodies in rows of 50. When did you hear about the Japanese surrender? Well, we saw the... We were in the camp and they wouldn't let us go to work. They stopped us work and they started to give us some extra food and um, they were very nice to us, the Japs guards and uh, next thing all the Japs disappeared and they came back in their best uniforms and they put a radio up in front of the commandant's office on a table and they all assembled and then this voice came out of the um, radio and they all bowed and they kept bowed until somebody told them to relax and then this voice kept on going and um, uh, then the interpreter was standing over the thing, so we asked him what a thing, and he called me. He called me a major instead of a number. I was Ichiban number one. He called me major, and I said immediately he said that I knew that, you know, that he was 
crawling, see. So I said, it's over, isn't it? And he said, yes. And I turned around to the chaps, the senior chaps, the other nationalities, and I said, let's go and find the commandant. So I went in, he was just disappearing through the window. So I went out and told the commandant, the interpreter, that he had about two hours to get the commandant back to see us. So he, he, he had him back within an hour, and we stuck him in a cell. And um, we, we um, then the, the Americans flew over the following day and they dropped paper to, to, to the, 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 oh, no, no they, they flew over that evening and said, paint P, PW on the roofs of, if you're a prisoner war camp. They did, and then the following day, they came over and dropped an awful lot of food and clothing and medicines and stuff for us. And then they dropped uh, pamphlets all over the countryside to the Japanese warning them that they'd be shot if they were caught with even an empty tin of rations or anything out of the things. And if they, f if they found any of the parachutes, they were to bring them to the nearest camp. And they did. What about long-term effects? Do you feel that you've suffered any long-term effects from...? Well, I suppose I have, really. I, mentally, no, I don't, I don't think so, because a lot of the people did, and thank God I, I, I seem to have escaped that. I've had um, broken elbow, which I had about four operations on my right elbow, and I had a brain tumour, which was diagnosed as having been from the beatings I was getting on the head... I had that removed, and I've had cancer twice, once in my throat and once in my skin, which a professor um, of um, radiobionics in London Middlesex Hospital thinks that was probably due to my exposure to the, semi-exposure to the atomic bomb thing. But apart from that, then... And what would you say was the single characteristic that enabled you to survive all of that period? Well, it's a combination, really, of um, uh, of my Irish Catholic heritage, my family background, my Jesuit training in Clungos, uh, and lots and lots of luck. 